Hello and welcome back to The Mariner with me, Chris Stammel Major. Well, this episode is a continuation of the story I was telling in Podcast 6. I'll give you a quick recap here, some elements from what was going on in the story, and then we can continue with this episode. I see, okay, it's getting stronger and stronger, and then like the wind, the true wind speeds at like 40, 42, and like, i got to put another reef in. This is insane. Like, as I get the tack set in, and I start to bring on the halyard, I look up at the back edge of the sail and it's all flapping and going crazy. It's like a machine gun going on. I can see the sail and I can see there's a big rip in it and I can see the light of the sun shining through the sail. And that's when I realized I had torn my mainsail. 36 foot, like that 12 meters of stitching and I'm gonna be doing it by hand with a sail needle and, and flat wax cotton. Luckily I had a lot of that on board. It's still blowing, it's still blowing 15, 20 knots. The waves are still washing over the back of the boat. I've got an immersion suit on, but I have to have my hands exposed. Water temperature very low, air temperature very low, miles from anywhere. I tack all this on and I look around at the up and down at the patch and I think, okay, 36 feet. Like, how fast can I stitch proper herringbone and braddle everything and in these conditions warm my hands? And, and I realized, like, realistically, it's going to take me an hour per foot. It's going to take 36 hours. I just, I can remember kneeling on the deck with all the sailing stuff. I think I still had the sailor's palm on my hands, putting both my hands on the floor and just going, I can't do this. Like, this is too much. I don't know how to do this. It was at that moment that uh, I kind of, not a vision or a daydream or a, a memory, but just some kind of like, well, daydream, I guess, is what it, you'd describe it as. But I just imagine then somebody okay. and who now was, on with the you know, story of support to me, who was who was very close to me, who was uh, somebody who mentally I'd been relying on. And I just imagine that person sitting on the side deck, and I thought what they'd say, and I thought, well, they'd probably just be sitting there, wouldn't they? Be having a cup of tea and be looking down at me. You know, they're not affected by anything because they're part of a daydream. They'd just be like, well, this is very interesting, isn't it? Were you? What's this game? What are you What are you doing? What would be my answer to that? Well, today's game is called um, the giving up game. I'm now in the middle of giving up. <laughs> and they probably think that was very funny. And they probably wouldn't be as worried about it as I am because they'd be outside of the problem and it wouldn't really be affecting them. They're a daydream. They're a see-through. So they might offer some advice. What would the advice be? Well, the advice would be, like a parent to a child, probably you need to get out of here because you are like a couple of thousand miles from anybody and uh, this is very dangerous and nasty and uh, the most logical course of action now is to do whatever it is you need to do to get out of here. I thought well that's that'd be very nice for this daydream to say because they're not cold and they're not tired and they're not you know worried about everything they're not affected by any of this like so I would say to the daydream yeah well that's impossible. I can't get out of this. This is too much. And then that was where the weird thing happened. The daydream in my head said, well, I'll stay with you and I'll, I'll look after you. I'll, I'll provide some support. And obviously, I'm not religious. It's nothing like that. I'm not uh, a spiritualist or anything else. But just that feeling of the fact that even this daydream would just be there to kind of help me through that was enough that was enough that something inside me kicked into a slightly different gear call it survival call it call it whatever you like but whatever it was something kicked into a slightly different gear and I thought okay I can do this but I'm gonna have to like I'm gonna have to like grind things into gear here I'm gonna have to I'm going to have to find something inside me. So I started trying to, and in the book I describe it as like a big engine, a giant engine, willpower, this engine. And this moment of just realizing this little daydream, like, oh yeah, there's somebody here that will support me. Just in my mind, maybe just people out there in the world, people I can communicate with by text and email and stuff via the satellite phone, but they're out there. I'm not completely on my own, even though I'm distanced from people. I got to find something else that's going to give me some oomph to get through. I'm someone that's driven internally by my own desire to do things, but I'm also driven by externally people um, 
needing me to do stuff. I need to be, I need to feel that what I'm doing is useful for other people, that I'm helping other people, that I'm providing something. And so I thought about my mum and dad. I thought my dad very ill and uh, already been through a lot himself trying to deal with me doing this, but now getting on top of it and happily supporting me and feeling very much that I was, you know, doing something incredible that he was proud of. And I thought about my team, uh, Donna and, and Aston and people that had helped me get the boat ready and support I'd had through all of it, all the way through. You know, you go and sail around the world solo, okay, it's it's a very, very selfish thing in many ways, but um, you're not really going solo. Like, there's so many people who are communicating with you and supporting you and, and pushing you forward. Like, you never feel like you're really alone when you're positive. Certainly, at this moment, I did, but I needed to re-engage with the fact that I wasn't. Um, I thought about the people who had been writing to me who had found some resilience and some light and, and positivity in the things that I've been doing. They've been transferring it themselves back to their home life. Um, I had somebody who wrote to me and said that um, he come home and the garage roof had fallen in on the car and he had just come home like, geez, I think like a tree had come in or something and, oh my God, this is too much. So he goes and gets himself a coffee, goes and sits down at the computer and then he'd been reading about some other situation I've been going through on this race some other terrible circumstance and he'd written to me and said I read that and realized like you know what I'm in a house and I've got like Starbucks down the road and I've got an insurance thing and you're out there on your own and you're dealing with it so I thought Jesus I can deal with this if he can do that then I can do that and for me that's an empowering thing that makes going and doing this around the world stuff really really valuable to other people who vicariously come with me and transfer something out of it into their daily lives and are able to push forward because of an example a little example that i can give of what we can all achieve right and i thought about these people and i thought about my team i thought about my parents and i thought about this person who was sitting in the cockpit with me giving me this uh much more rosy view of of how things could be and um and finally i thought about what it would mean to me to give up and to give up and, and those people's dreams and aspirations and their thoughts and their hopes for me would die with die with me giving up. And I think that's where I I let out a <laughs> like a film like Braveheart or something, just let out it the biggest raw that you can let out to energize yourself to to revitalize yourself to reconnect yourself with what it is to be alive and to remind yourself that um while you've still got yourself you've still got hope and while you've still got energy and action you can still push forward and i got up off the floor and uh <laughs> and i looked over at my little daydream and uh was given the advice you probably need to hurry up and get on with it. <laughs> and I did. And uh, started to make all the brattle holes and get the thing through. And I didn't think about six foot, 36 foot, whatever it was. I didn't think about 36 hours. I just thought about push this thing through the sail, push that through there. And if I remember correctly, a technique I've used to get through very difficult things like that, where you have to do hugely repetitive tasks, I just put one album on and it just goes round and 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 round. And you just lull yourself into some kind of like weird hypnotic state. And if I remember correctly, <laughs> it was the Proclaimers. So that's that's how bad things were. The Proclaimers, God help me, were going round and round and round and around and round and it went and it went round and round and round for 36 hours. And uh, I ate some and I drank copious amounts of tea and probably smoked copious amounts and after 36 hours of water coming over the back of the boat <clears throat> just rolling on with these head sores slowly slowly all the rest of this fleet are just flying away from me i finally after 36 hours got all the ropes off that had been holding the sail on the deck got it hoisted and literally as soon as i hoisted it i went from doing 10 knots to 25 knots and i remember distinctly it was coming into um coming into evening and uh, as I did it, I mentioned, I think last time, Fields Porpoises, they're black and white and uh, and quite small. I call them licorice comforts. And as I got going and the boat started to pick up and it started to create a pressure wave and there's foam all around it, it's jumping out the waves again. These little Fields Porpoises in a pod, like 
five or ten of them, they're just right alongside the boat. And if you've ever been on a fast boat when there's dolphins and porpoises around, at ten knots, you'll get like every dolphin there is around you. They come and kind of jump along next to you and frolic a little bit and swim under the bow. But when you're doing like 15, 20, 25 knots, it's just the the really energetic, powerful ones that are coming. And as they jump next to the boat, remember the boat's only like a meter or so off the water. And I am I stand nearly two meters then above that. Pardon me, there's, um, these things are jumping like two, three meters clear of the water. You can hear them like blowing the air and they... They look at you, you look at them, and every instinct inside you says, they're just doing this for fun. So having had this horrible period of time of this, <laughs> I remember there's some piece of video somewhere of me. Um, it's nighttime, I've got the, the camera, and uh, it's that weird like green light with your eyes glowing that happens when you've got those, those cameras. And uh, I say to the camera, um, if I die and go to hell, I'll know exactly where I am because they'll say, welcome back. Because that that night, that was a very, very nasty place to be. Well, not night, two nights of it, 36 hours of it, <clears throat> having not already slept. So I'm now three days into being awake and I am pooched and I am gutted by the fact that I'm 510 miles behind the last person in the fleet. They've gone 500 miles ahead of me. I've lost the gate, I've lost the points. Um, I'm heading for Cape Horn, but I tell you there's one thing. There was one thing. I looked up at that mainsail, and 50 feet above me, there is a piece of Cuban fiber which is stitched into that sail, stronger, tougher, harder than anything. And I'd taken a marker pen and I'd put this took me 36 hours, and I am now going to Cape Horn. And <laughs> I had I got through. And I didn't know before that, that I could stretch myself out like that. And I think the thing that comes through in this kind of endeavor, when you take it home, when you share it back, there's there's nothing special about me. <laughs> like anybody knows me, knows there's, there's nothing special about me. But there's very much something special about all of us, all, all, all of us, something ordinary people can do. You can do extraordinary things. If you can change gear, if you can get that will engine powering up if you can do it for yourself do it for other people do it for whatever's in front of you if you can kick that thing into gear as we all know from all the great stories of history unbelievable things are available and to have that then as a sure and certain knowledge inside you of like if i get pushed hard up against the wall i can respond with energy and will and power in a way which is disproportionate to everyday life that is an amazing thing to find out about yourself so in this race so far, I found the very bottom of what is possible for me. And I'd learned how to put the pieces like an airfix kit back together again. That's part of being human, to fall apart and then to learn how to put things back together again. And then the other part of being human is to know when it gets really, really bad, I can actually lift my game and do something incredible. And uh, those little fields porpoises next to the boat and looking up at that thing as the sun went down, whatever it was, 48 hours from it all going horribly wrong, 40 hours, what the time is here, something had changed in me and I had a different attitude towards it. And I thought, I'm putting these sails up and they come down when they blow themselves down. And that's how this is gonna go. No more reefing because we're worried about things. No more freaking out about the fact that this may happen or that may happen. I'm going for this, I'm going to go hard. And if thing is going to blow up in a fireball of carbon fiber and sail material and me rowing the life raft before I go slow and 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 quell again, if, before I give up and, and are pushed back by the fear of what may come next, I'm not going to be af afraid of fear anymore. And so I went to sleep <laughs> because the only thing you can do at that point Having made sure the the food's in, the sugar's in, the oxygen is okay, you know, I'm breathing, I'm here, I'm still alive. The one thing about open 60s is that um, you can uh, you can spend all the time in the world trimming and 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 trying to find the best from them in light conditions. But when it's pumping, when the seas are at the right angles and you've got the right sails up and you you've got the wind angle running on the autopilot, when it comes to that moment, 
when it's all right and it's all good, it is like being on a horse that's galloping. It is 25 to 30 knots. The boat bow is up. The ballast is in the back. The, the keel is canted. The dagger board's down. The main's squeezed on tight. The trinket's oversheated. The solent's in exactly where it needs to be and sheeted out onto the, onto the, uh, the arm of the deck spreader. At that point, there's nothing else you can do. It is a low-flying, wind-powered missile, and it's going to do its own thing. That is what it's created for. That is what it does. And all of this, like, blowing around with just one sail up or going slow and all the rest of that stuff, that's trotting. That's cantering. That's trying to drive the Jaguar or the NASCAR around in the, in the, in the shopping market, in the supermarket car park. That is not what it's designed for. It just kind of can do it. But what it's designed for, the jag in the outside lane of the highway, the NASCAR on the track, the horse galloping, that's what it does. And an open 60 at speed flying like that or a Volvo 65 or any of these pedigree offshore race boats, when they get going, boy, oh boy, oh boy, that is a thing to behold. The power in everything. You know, you're talking about the fact that the backstays are on that tight, that you've actually bent the hull, the fact that the, the bow is coming extra inch out the water. You've got tension in the hull. You've got this incredibly strong monocoque of this boat just being pounded by the ocean. But that's what it does, is what it takes. That's what it's built for. It's just leaping off things, leaping clear and acceleration, whoa, de-acceleration and off it goes again. And the rudders are hissing and and throwing these massive rooster tails out the water, that's what it's about. And that's the gear that I shoved it into next. Turbo's fully engaged. It was a case of, here we go. And um, it took all of that. It took breaking the mainsail. It took falling apart and having to find this strength from other people and from this daydream sitting on the side deck and realizing this is one moment in my life. Do you remember that in uh, The Highlander? I think it's um, Sean Connery's character. He has to stop that big fan that's going to kind of come down and squeeze them all. He says, if you take all of the energy in your life, and you put it into one moment, incredible things can happen. And that's it in your life. You have to find something that's your passion, your, your moment, your thing that you can put yourself into. And that moment was one of the ones for me, even though I was so tired. So I set off. And I set off from 500 miles behind. I set off from Point Nemo. And that was the beginning of me knowing how to drive an open 60. Um, so I'm going to divide this part of this into uh, this. This is a very long leg and a lot more was yet to come. Obviously, I'm a long way behind and I had a big job ahead of me to, to, to go down to Cape Horn. Just the physicality of going to Cape Horn. We talked about the way that these... Uh, massive weather systems roll around the world and head into Cape Horn. We talked about the fact that if you want to get out of those weather systems, you have to go north. So as you're going down towards Cape Horn, you get to a point where the land is to the north of you. And if you go uh, north, you're going to be on the lee shore with the storm coming in. So basically you have to commit to the horn. And that point was only, you know, a thousand miles ahead of me, only like four or five days ahead of me at these speeds. But at this point, having gone through this massive, situation with this sail I went to sleep and that probably is the best way to leave this I am now sleeping soundly as my giant carbon fiber steed flies through the southern ocean night uh, the broken wing is fixed and it's time to fly to Cape Horn so all right that's the end of that section um, I wanted to address uh, trying to segment this up a little bit into a few other bits so We've got uh, question time. So <laughs> the coffee needs to be renewed, I think. And we'll come back and we'll answer Pat's question. I did um, I did read a bit of it earlier. This is Pat Brady, 205 via Instagram. Thanks, Pat. He says, uh, loving the podcast so far. I've been waiting for a sailing podcast focused on ocean racing with as much detail as you put in. Well, as long as you don't mind stories and detail, I think you're in the right place. The way you go off on tangents is perfect for me. Just as my mind starts to wander, so does yours. Yeah, I think that's sailors, basically. Like most of our life is just one giant tangent away from real life. So I think we're all on that one. He says, here's my question. I love this question. I thought I thought the question I was going to get was like, how do you reef? Or how do you splice the end of a line? Or whatever. Pat's question is like something totally different. Listen to this. He says, I'm working on a 2,000-piece jigsaw puzzle during this quarantine quarantine situation. I'm expecting it to take me the better part of two weeks. 
that's realistic. Well done, Pat. I'm curious, what was your equivalent puzzle throughout the Velux? Did you have a never-ending project that took you the entire race to work out? What a fantastic question. You're like, give up sailing, Pat, and, and become like Christian master. All right, I'm going to get another coffee. I'm going to come back and I'm going to answer Pat's question. Time for a new section called Questions and Tangents. All right, and I'm back. I've got my cup of coffee. I've chucked a couple more logs on the fire. So if you hear that popping and sparking, you know what that is. And we've got um, Pat's question to answer. So Pat asks if there was something which I was working on all the way around the world. I think learning how to sail an Open 60 would be my first answer to that. Um, but obviously, clearly, that's not exactly what he's going for. Um, I think the thing which I had to work on all the way around the world was a, a technical issue with the uh, the mainsail. The the way that the open sixties work, the boom is connected to the the deck of the boat. So it's um, you've got the mast. The mast is seated onto the deck. It's deck stepped, as you might imagine. But then there's a gooseneck, which on those boats is quite a large fitting. It's not connected to the mast. It's built into the deck, and it's um, it allows the boom to come down like at an angle, like right into the deck. So the reason that happens is a couple of different things. Number one is from an aerodynamic point of view, um, you create an end plate effect on the on the mast, uh, sorry, on the mainsail if you bring the boom down that low to the deck. So on any surface which has got breeze flowing across it, um, we have to consider the fact that not only is the breeze going from front to back on the sail, but it's also washing off the top and it's washing off the bottom. And those effects can be uh, create a lot of induced drag. So, you know, on an airplane, you're flying along, you look out the window and you see that little um, thing that kicks up on the end of the wing. That is an end plate. It's a non-planar winglet. It's a winglet that goes up off the plane of the wing and goes up at an angle. And it helps to smooth out the turbulent flow coming off the end of the wings. On a sailboat that's got a boom that's uh, up in the air, like a Volvo 65 or a Volvo 60 or, or most boats really, right? The wind is not only going from front to back on the mainsail, but it's actually washing off the mainsail and coming down into the cockpit area and is um, creating induced turbulent air underneath the boom. So if you can get the sail closer, closer, closer down onto the deck, the deck itself stops and mitigates that induced drag and stops that wash effect, right? So the other thing that we talked about already is the fact that because of this gooseneck fitting, you can then, if you lose the mast in a rollover instant, you can cut away the mainsail in time. You can then get the boom, stand the boom up in the gooseneck, and then you've got yourself like a ready-made 30-foot mast. But it creates some very interesting effects um, when you start to um, pull down hard on the main sheet and, uh, and create tension at the end of the boom. So, mm. Now, this is my favorite kind of coffee. It is nasty instant coffee with way too much sugar in, just the way I like it. So um, what do we got? Um, if you imagine a crane, like a, a normal crane, like a, a child's idea of a, of a crane, right? You have a, a big boom that goes out, which is where the, the weight is going to be uh, suspended. And then you have cables that come back to go that, to two little towers on the back of it, which then uh, lift up and lower down the, the boom. Okay, so think about the tension that's in there. The boom of the boat is equal to the boom of the crane. The main sheet is equal to the loading going onto the um, the the end of the the, the the boom and the crane where the, the weight is being lifted. And then think about where the force comes from the end of the boom. The sail is not attached to the boom. That obviously we've stopped doing that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So if you think of the crane that turns up to lift something heavy, the cables which lift up the boom of the crane they're pretty horizontal like you don't have to have a very much of a lift on the towers on the back of the crane to be able to lift the boom up and down so the immediate direction in which the force is transmitted is not like up the leech of the mainsail or you know to to bisect the luff of the mainsail it actually goes pretty horizontally across the sail that's where the initial tension is it's very, very key in, in mainsail design that the cutback on the sail, like i.e. how close the mainsail is uh, at its tack point to the deck and to the mast, or for most people, into the gooseneck, 
Um, that cutback is very, very important. If it's sitting too far out from the gooseneck, you'll perpetually have loads of stress being imparted to the sliders on the front of the mainsail. And when the boom gets pulled down tight and that tension goes across, the tension will go across and it'll identify some attachment point on the front and it'll start to pull on it really, really hard, right? Mm. On the open 60, because the boom is at an angle, this horizontal or near horizontal transfer of uh, force across is massive, it's exponential. And when you crank down on the uh, main sheet on Spartan, the top of the main just would not close up. I've been on the open 60, uh, sorry, the open, no, hang on, <laughs> these damn boats. I've been on the Volvo 65 sailing Poland recently when we had her as Nova Scotia in the Caribbean 600 and then in the Heineken. And it's just, the sails are beautifully cut. And when you pull down on the main, the top of the mainsail closes up nice and tight. You get this beautiful um, blade shape on the on the leech of the sail. And it's a, it's a thing to behold. And it gives you that ability to, to go upwind and that you want to do and to power up the top of the sail. For the Spartan, the Open 60, when you pulled in on the main, all that happened is loads of force was being transferred across and it met the mainsail at the, sorry, it met the mast at the height of the first batten on the mainsail. And that had some pretty catastrophic effects because if it was just a slider, what we do on the Open 60s is that the sliders are attached to the mainsail uh, by elastic. You just get three-eighths or three-quarters, uh, sorry, three-eighths or quarter-inch uh, elastic um, and all of the intermediates are attached by bungee. So there's a lot more kind of movement available rather than doing it with webbing uh, where then the crink the, the actual uh, cringles get pulled out the sail. Um, so the only real like solid attachment points are the battens. And obviously you've got the batten coming in. The batten goes into a batten box, which is the piece of hardware on the mainsail. It's then got the little pin that goes out, goes into the mainsail batten car which is on the on the mast, and that's your, your main kind of attachment point. This force being transmitted from this angled boom at the bottom of the open 60 mainsail was transferring a force that lined up exactly with the first baton. And the first time I cranked in hard, here we go, I'm racing now, boink, it just pulled <laughs> the mainsail track off the mast, which is, um, it's one of those kind of like uh, roadrunner moments where you kind of like your eyes get much bigger and you realize with a, a, a shock that something serious just happened. So that was a carbon fiber mast with a, um, it's 26 mil Harken track, I think on that. And it's, uh, it, it's a big track, but it's attached by little countersunk um, machine screws that go into helicoils stuck in the mast. So the, the, the carbon fiber initially would have been tapped, but um, you know, as fixtures and fittings get changed and things get damaged and all the rest of it, the um, the, the fact is that the uh, they've been replaced and now we've got this little spring-like coil of metal that's been inserted into the mast. It's gripping outwards on the hole in the carbon and inside it's creating a thread from machine machine screen to go into. But it's been helicoiled. It just would what happened is as soon as I sheeted on the, the, the main, the force transmitted, it got hold of the main track and just pulled it off the mast. And it didn't even do it nicely, like just by lifting it off slightly, it literally tore a little section about 20 centimeters long. What's that like? Um, oh man, I can't even do conversions today. My brain is so frazzled from talking about all this. 20 centimeters is what, like 10 inches, something like that, 25 centimeters, 10 inches. So. Um, it just tore that much straight out of the mast. It was just at a bit where it was like at the end of a track section. The sections were six foot, two meters long. And it was kind of at the top of it anyway. And it just pulled it, clink, straight off. So suddenly you've got the batten with the batten car still attached with a bent piece of mainsail track hanging off. And it was about 10, 11 feet up the mast, just where you can't reach and do it, just where you're going to have to go and get a bosun's chair and, and kind of climb up. And uh, but not too high up that it was so much of an issue. And that problem plagued that boat literally around the world. Getting back to Pat's question, what was the puzzle that I had to sort all the way around the world? We had the mainsail recut. We had all sorts of things done. You're looking at the bend of the mast. You're looking at, you know, but in the end, it basically came to the fact that the mainsail was just cut too skinny in that area. And when this force came on it, it was just so massive that what can you do? And 
it was actually much later on in the race where, yes, it was a puzzle that I dealt with all the way around the world, but ultimately there had to be some kind of solution. In the end, Pat, that puzzle of yours is going to end up getting done, and this, unless you lost some of it under the sofa. And um, what I did was I just I rolled with the punches. I had to get the top of the main to close up. I'm losing so much performance. The mainsail is trying to rip it, the mast track off. I ended up replacing that piece of mast track 11 times going around the world. 11 times i was in the end taking pieces of extra track with me about 14 inches long that i was getting from anywhere i could get them from and then as it would pull it off i would have machine screws and helicoils and epoxy i'd repair the ones that had just been damaged and then i'd have to file everything off file the main track so it all like perfectly burred into itself and sort itself out off we go again so that was a massive headache up the rig doing it like but what are we gonna do right like we, uh, you'd be saying, well, there probably is a way of recutting the sails so that it would be right. Yeah, there was. We can't afford it. <laughs> That's where I was at. I was making videos and taking the photos, and we were winning media awards for the stuff that we were churning out from the boat. I say we, because obviously I'm sending it to someone and they're sending it on to other people. And, but me, I'm producing stuff. We had no money. We had no money for accommodation when we got places. I often stay on the boat. We had nothing, nada, zero. So the idea of just sending the mainsail in for like the front of it to be reassessed and all of the uh, <clears throat> cringles to be re-sorted out and the batten boxes reset, it's like, it ain't gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. So what I ended up doing was I think from just before Charleston onwards, what I did is I made a system whereby I, I shaped the pin that the pin that goes through that holds the batten box in, I changed the way that pin set up. I can't remember exactly how now, but I changed it so basically I could pull the pin and it would release the batten from its car <laughs> and just roll with the punches, right? <clears throat> if it wants to pull itself off, I cannot fix this anymore. I cannot afford to get it fixed properly. I have to get the top of this mainsail closed up. So when I need to do that, I go to the mast, pull this pin, and then I could sheet it on. Now, when it got time to put it back in, obviously you don't just like ease the main sheet and it all just lines back up again. Then I had a system of um, lines that I would take up and onto the side of the mast and up from the cockpit and all these different lines. And I'd attach them in three different axes to the, <laughs> to the baton. Can you believe this stuff, right? Now, had it been two people on the boat, one of you could just get the baton and the other one could just shove it and, and shove it in the hole. And the other one could just put the pin in, right? But as I think Robin Ox Johnson once said, um, Sailing solo is more than twice as difficult as sailing double-handed. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. It is a lot harder sailing solo doing this stuff than it is double-handed because just like that, somebody holds the baton, puts it back into the baton car, end of story, right? When you're on your own, I've got to create um, winches in lines that are like through going through rings and little snatch blocks and stuff off the rigging so that I can pull it this way, this way, pull it, this way and this way and then pull it that way so that I can maneuver these the forces in this thing I don't drop the mainsail and do it like firstly when you drop a full mainsail on open 60 it weighs like just under 200 kilos so putting it back up we call that a moonshot where you have to grind it from the bottom to the top that is like firstly it's slow secondly you're puking on your shoes because the amount of effort you're putting out you can't be doing that you could lower the sail that well like halfway it isn't going to just come into place the bottom baton on Falcon is eight meters long, <laughs> which is, I don't know how many feet that is, a lot of feet long. It's um, it's like 26 or 27 feet or something like that. It's massively long and there's a huge amount of force in it. So getting it back into that slot with two people, super easy, getting it back in with one person, massive problem. But if you're going for performance, that's what you gotta do. So um, yeah, the uh, for me, that was a puzzle that kept on going all the way around the world. I think that being part of the larger puzzle of um, what on earth am I doing <laughs> out here? Uh, what is going on? So yeah, I hope that answers your question, Pat. And if anybody else got questions like that, I I, I, I don't know any, I hope there's other people doing podcasts like this where we talk about this kind of stuff openly and, and frankly and kind of share stuff because uh, I love this offshore thing. And you can see me talking about, you know, the, the emotional effects on me. Like I've learned so much about myself. I've been able to share things with other people that have made positive effects on them. It's not about like who comes first and white sunglasses and did you win or did you destroy the boat millions of dollars? Like, because I've got a surname Stanmore Major. I remember going on a, um, a radio broadcast in the UK and one guy said, Are you as posh as your name sounds? 
Like, uh, no, <laughs> frankly, no. And I'm certainly not as, uh, there's no money around any of this. Anything I had to do, even though it's an open 60, even though, I'll tell you, I'll give you a quick last part to that. I can remember when we left Charleston, the boat was in the best possible condition it had ever been in. We got it all like pretty much wired. That's the last leg of this that we'll get to in the story. But I remember we just painted the white stripes on the bow of the boat. And as I was departing, uh, I let the lines go. <laughs> I walked through the wet paint and uh, put three or four white footprints down the red foredeck. That's how fancy we were. So, yeah, when I talk about trying to like solve this problem, recutting the main, yeah, I'm sure that would have been great. Couldn't do it. So um, there you go, Pat. That's the answer to that one. So anybody else got any other questions like that? Uh, I'll, I'll give them my my full attention and uh, and have a cup of coffee and in, in enjoying chatting with you. But. Um, Okay, the last thing to talk about is uh, is people have written to me and said, uh, we've been doing this thing recently. I put that uh, video on YouTube and on Facebook about the Ocean Globe Race. That's coming up in 2023. And um, I was... I was interested in the Golden Globe race, the retro Golden Globe race that kicked off a couple of years back. I had a thought to be involved in it, but it didn't appeal to me going in a 30-foot boat um, and, and, you know, going around the world in 200 days. Like, that's just... That's not where I'm at. That's not what I want to do. I had no time for that. I've got a, a business, some, you know, a family, all the rest of it. When they came back with this new idea of doing the Whitbread, I was like, ooh, this is very interesting. I remember it was Andy Shell actually, who does the On The Wind podcast, which if you're listening to this, you're going to enjoy that. And for all those people listening to that, come and listen to this, right? Um, but uh, Andy told me about it. I was like, ooh, this is very interesting. What's this about? But at that point, they're only making it available to boats up to designed up to 84 or something well they've since opened it back up and or opened it up further and they're going to admit any boats that were in the whitbread so that takes you up to 97 which um and there's a thought like do we want to do this but if we do want to do it i i don't want to do it like messing around i want to do it like properly i want to do it firstly safely secondly i don't want nut jobs on board that make it miserable for everybody else i want to be focused i want to be you know enjoying it loving the passion of being at sea being competitive and 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 have a great opportunity doing it so for me that comes down to the boat's going to have to be tip top a1 the crew's going to have to be well trained and well versed in what's going on psychologically be in a good place so the route is going to be they haven't confirmed it but it's basically going to be the original ocean globe uh, sorry the original uh, whitbread route which would take you from europe down to cape town cape town stop off in australia or new zealand round cape horn stop off in south america somewhere and then stop off in north america somewhere newport or annapolis or maybe nova scotia just put that out there to the uh, the guys that are running this nova scotia and then back across the atlantic so very much the same as the 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 velux race i did um it is a fantastic route and if we've been telling the story now you can see how my skill was building you can still see how it was going is it um something to be going doing with amateurs no, it's not something to go and do with amateurs. We'd only be setting off at a point where everybody that was on board had been trained up to a level. Now, that obviously puts you into clipper territory and the things that the clipper race does. The clipper race goes to Australia or New Zealand and then goes up into Asia and then crosses the um, the Pacific and then back down the, uh, the American West Coast and then through the Panama up the East Coast and back to Europe, right? So it's... Uh, like a mid-latitudes um, transit. It does dip down towards the Southern Ocean, but the Southern Ocean starts from 40 degrees south. There is no way of doing around-the-world yacht race um, and going south of Cape Horn uh, at the moment. The Challenge Race used to do it. That's no longer with us by 20 years. So if you're going to race around the world and you're going to go below Cape Horn, this is the only way of doing it. And if Maybe racing is not necessary for you, but you, you want to go south of Cape Horn and go from Australia around, unless you're going to get your own boat or a very, very tiny amount of boats that may be going and doing that. There is no other way of doing it. So I like it also because um, the Whitbread 60s, the Volvo 60s, they're all designed for that exact uh, route, right? So when an open 60 and a, and a Volvo 60 and what have you is, is upside down, when it's... Uh, uh, had some catastrophic situation. The amount of lead that's in the keel, the amount of uh, length on that keel, once it's upside down, it has a very, very narrow angle of inverted stability. Challenger has been uh, tested to, I think she's 126 degrees is the angle of vanishing stability. So you can go horizontal to the water and then go nearly 30 or 40 degrees 
below the waterline before she's actually starting to get to a point where she more wants to be upside down. Then with the ballast tanks, the ballast tanks then can be flooded. Normally you'd be sailing along with one full or whatever anyway because of the way you're sailing. That ballast tanks will further disorientate the, 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 the boat when it's upside down. It will not, well, not disorientate, but destabilize the boat when it's upside down. The boat's upside down, go, where am I? Um, the, it will then, that weight of the ballast uh, on one side will roll it back over. If you're upside down and none of the ballast tanks are full, there's a way to fill them from the inside. So they will then top fill, pardon me, and they will, um, then you'll roll the boat back over. So they are designed for incredible work cycles, incredible strength. Challenger did the middle sea race and cracked her bow, two bow frames, which is now was getting fixed in Alicante before all of this craziness happened. And she had an issue also where um, the new keel that we put on in Connecticut at the end of 2018, brand new keel plate, brand new keel bolts, um, that had been sitting on a massive pad of Sikaflex and some fairing had come off on the bottom of the hull with all of that movement during the middle sea race and a very difficult delivery from England. And um, with the fairing off, we started to get a little bit of movement uh, uh, in the keel where the the sycophlex was starting to it was put in too thick basically and the keel needed to be retalked and retalked and retalked and it just with the amount of uh, effort that she'd gone through that sycophlex started to get uh, pulled out by the ocean and, and worked its way out and a little bit of movement started to open up on the keel bolts and at first when we had the issue um, with her we were like oh my god the boat's coming apart but we got um, an ultrasound done she passed that a1 um, and then we got a uh, heat source infrared uh, testing done to further check the boat and uh, the hull is completely fine. The, what we're going to do though is we're going to uh, address this with the keel and we're going to put um, yet more reinforcement then we'll have fully reinforced fully uh, up-to-date method of connecting the keel to the, the, sh the, the hull of the boat plus new the new keel bolts we've already got plus the new keel we've got plus we're putting new chain plates on um, so the boat is now at a point where it's been super checked through and it's going to be uh, refitted ready for this event we're going to have crew training happening in a couple of different ways for this one what we're doing is right now uh, because of everything that's happening in the world basically spartan is unable to do any of the events going forward we just heard the other day that the newport bermuda race is cancelled uh, we don't know if that's going to come back in a year's time or if it's going to come back in two years time the regatta del sol al sol that we were doing down in um, st petersburg in florida that was cancelled and the Quebec Saint-Malo, which is our big transat for this year we've been looking forward to, it's very likely that's going to happen, that's going to be cancelled as well. So you can imagine from my point of view, it's like oh, my entire business has just disappeared. So trying to pivot and, and turn and look in a new direction, what we're doing now is we're putting together a, a series of online training, which is going to be... Um, it's going to be done through Spartan and it's going to be called the Mariner course. It's going to have three parts to it, the basic, the intermediate and the advanced. And it is going to start taking people through um, another level of seamanship. The RYA and everything the RYA does and world sailing is awesome. There is no doubt about that. But anybody that's in the industry, in the super industry, in the racing industry, you know as well as I do that um, people can have great qualifications, come on board the boat and they don't know anything. They don't know how to problem solve things, they don't know how to fix things, they don't know um, how things really work in the real world. Because doing the RYA stuff is brilliant, but it's like passing your driving test. Then you go and learn to drive, right? And there is another level of seamanship that's available and it's getting lost and getting lost. And ocean racing and ocean passaging is becoming, um, in my mind, it's becoming an area where a very small group of people have this high level knowledge and it doesn't exist anywhere else. So to blow the top off of that, um, we're putting it together now. It's going to be the first one will be the basic course and it's going to be 12 units and you'll be able to purchase them either as an individual unit for 200 bucks or do the whole thing for 2000 bucks. It'll be multiple videos in each unit. Each unit's divided into five parts. There's videos, there's assessments, there's uh, Q&A sessions live, there's seminars, there'll obviously be the podcast, there'll be the Mariner things, there's the written blog. There's a whole community of people that care about the stuff, that want to learn about it. If you're doing ARC events, if you're going around the world, if you're doing your own things into the high latitudes, rope work, engines, rigging, composite work, seamanship in storms, seamanship when things are going wrong, dealing with the crew, psychology, um, racing tactics, navigation, meteorology, working out expedition, working out Adrena, working out, you know, there are so many things that come to be as part of 
being an offshore sailor. Don't worry about if it's racing or cruising. The skill's all the same. All that's happening with the racing is that you're trying to use the boat at the very edge of what it can do. And with cruising, you choose to step back and keep it inside a nice, safe area that's good for you and what you're trying to do. But it's the same machine and it needs the same level of, of knowledge. So um, we're going to be producing this online course. We'll do the 12 part one first and say you can buy that in. There'll be some introductory offers to kind of get it out there and get it um uh, in and get feedback from the first you know group of 50 people that do it we'll get feedback what's different what do we need to change so we'll do it for like a, a reduced rate but then we'll be able to do the smaller individual units and maybe you want to do the one on anchoring or you want to do the one on sail repair or you want to do the one on i don't know watch systems and management and vittling and all this stuff there'll be uh, a basic one we'll do an intermediate one and we'll do an advanced one they'll build on top of each other and for those people that want it, that have contacted me now we've had over a hundred people contact and say i want to do this ocean globe race so we're doing it that's not in doubt at all we're going to go and do it so i want to see the boat fully wicked up and ready to go absolutely at the best of what it can be and as safe as it can be we've replaced the keel we've replaced the keel bolts we know the hull is perfect we're going to do everything now we can do new sails new ropes new navigation gear the whole nine yards right and if we can we'll even get both the boats into the event which will open it up for more people the race organizers are saying that they don't want people changing on and off in every leg and i think that's fair we want to have half the crew go round the world we want to have the other half of it, people doing like two legs. So we'll have a core crew. There's going to be 14 people in the crew and two professionals. Um, then there's going to be, uh, um, of those 14, seven people are going to go all the way around the world. And the price is going to be pretty much the same as the Clipper Race. So I'm not going to be behind the door about this. If you want to go and do this, you understand what it is to go and do ocean racing. The cost is going to be the same as going and doing the Clipper Race. And that's £50,000, okay? 50,000 pounds sterling. That will take you all the way around the world and it will do all the training. That is a huge amount of money. I'm not gonna even begin to get into it, but running one of these boats, taking it around the world, taking it away from the business we'd normally do with it, that's what it is. And that creates a wage for me and for the other skippers. It pays the insurance. You don't wanna know how much the insurance is to take a boat around the world with 16 people on it. This is open, this is honest, this is what it is. But what we're gonna do is gonna break it up. I'm gonna break it up in the following way. If you want to put a deposit down to go and do the round the world race, it's going to be a 10% deposit. If you want to put a deposit down to go and do the one of the, the legs, these two leg sections, it's going to be 50% of the cost of that. What we're going to do is make it that this entire training course, which we've got three years to go and do this, you can buy the course as you're going along. And once you've bought three of these courses, the basic, the intermediate and the advanced, then you'll have paid 10% down on your place going around the world. So the alternative thing is that you pay for the training and if something happens and you can't go around the world, you've already got value for your money and that deposit, which is a non-refundable deposit, you've got all the training, you've done everything you wanted to do, you've learned all the stuff about offshore sailing, you've got the value of that and you can walk away having received a product without ever having gone on the boat. If you wanna go and do around the world, you're also gonna to need to go and do events offshore and obviously our boats are out there doing these things. We have to get people trained up so we're competitive. We can't have people coming on board that did their training like, you know, a year before. So I'm asking that people that are doing, uh, they've done a race, which would be a six, minimum 600 mile race. That would be the 600, the Rolex Middle Sea race, the Fastnet, um, that they've done a transatlantic. So they've been involved for a big, long, you know, two week period or whatever it is at sea. That they've done a voyage that they've just done one where we're just going slower and we're just going relaxed. That's a lot more one-to-one -one time. It's a lot more making decisions based on safety. So you see both styles and that you've done a regatta, which is, you know, lots of maneuvers, lots of up, down with the spinnakers, trimming this and that you've got. So you've got the, the race, you've got the voyage, you've got the uh, regatta, you've got a transatlantic. You've seen all different aspects of how the boat works. And then there'll be a two week period before we go off around the world, we'll be doing more training and prepping the boat to go. So we've got a well-trained, up-to-date, cohesive crew, half of which are going all the way around, the other half of which are coming on for a minimum of two legs. There's cost involved. Go and have a see what it costs to do the clipper. Go and have a see what it costs to do the world arc. I'm pitching this at what I think is where the market is and what people can afford. And I'm hope I'm making a structure where we can stretch it out over time. You get maximum value of learning things, even down to 200 bucks and do one of these advanced seamanship uh, modules. Even the basic stuff I'm gonna be teaching 
should be beyond what the RYA does. We'll also be asking that everybody that goes and does this round the world event, everybody's got their Yachtmaster, which they'll do through us with the Skippers Online, brilliant online Yachtmaster system, that everyone's got their ENG1 medical, so there's no doubts about where they're at, that they've got another level of first aid training, which would be either ship's captain's medical or a woofer course, or certainly beyond like, you know, your St. John's ambulance. So we've got people that are going from where you are now to being brilliant at this. Yeah, that whole training running ahead of us, this clipper training that I did was awesome, but a lot of people who were touching base with it and couldn't really put as much into it as they wanted. And when they got on the boat, it was sometimes very obvious the fact that they were way out of their depth, right? There's a lot of people on the clipper boat, so you can absorb that and you can provide that experience even though it's not optimal. What we're doing is something different. There's gonna be 16 people on this boat, most of them uh, will have not done anything like this before, uh, you know, really into the Southern Ocean. We're taking a very safe boat and we're going to go and do it with a crew who have been training for years and working towards it. If that's something that to you sounds like you want to do it, um, we're going to be send your uh, send me an email. Uh, emails for this will be at CSM, Charlie Sierra Mike, my name, Chris Stanwell Major, CSM the Mariner at gmail.com. Um, you can also catch us at info at Spartan Ocean Racing, our normal uh, email account. You can catch us through Facebook, uh, through Instagram, like Pat did. Um, if you want to be involved in that, there's a forum coming together this week. We'll start talking with people of similar mind who want to do this kind of thing and come and be involved. So, yeah, this is me of doing this uh, podcast about sailing around the world. I am lining you all up for the idea that if you want, you can either vicariously follow this story of what's going to happen next, or you could actually, and I'm talking to you, Luke Allard, anybody can be involved in this. This is a case of spread it out over time, learn over time, and go and make this dream that many people have reality. I did it. I sat where you are. I had this idea. I could go and sail around the world. And I hopped and stepped and jumped with the stepping stones that were given to me, and I made it happen. So, uh, yeah, we've got an exciting time ahead. We'll finish up the story of going through the Southern Ocean and, and round the world. And then uh, let's see what this is going to go next. I hope learning more and more and more about offshore sailing and offshore seamanship with the idea that this becomes another resource for anybody who wants to travel anywhere. And there's a particular group of people somewhere who are using it uh, to glean amongst all of the silly stories and tangents information about how to sail around the world yourself. All right, cool. The coffee's nearly gone. Uh, I now need to get on with my day, get some more wood on the fire. We are in lockdown quarantine at the moment with the COVID-19 situation. I hope that wherever you are, you are safe, you are well, you are holding yourself together physically and mentally and looking after those people that are around you. Little kindnesses, little things. Be somebody's daydream. Get them through it as they help you get through this. And uh, let's come back together and I'll be telling you the story of rounding Cape Horn on Spartan in the Velux 5 Oceans race in the next episode. Until then, be safe, sail fast, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheers.